0: Beckett Cook has an incredible story. He's a man who lived by his own admission far from God for over 20 years. He was disdainful of the things of God. He self-identified as gay, and he lived in Dallas, Texas, and wanted a place where he felt he could pursue his lifestyle and uh, everything he wanted in life with unbridled passion. So he moved to Los Angeles, California. And in his book, and I have a copy of it here, it's called A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. He tells about partying in Cabo San Lucas with a a plethora of movie star friends, people he'd gotten to know throughout the years, frolicking at at the beach in the daytime, dancing at the clubs at night. Bottom line, he, he just had the life he had always wanted. He hung out with glamorous friends. He had extraordinary experiences. He says screenplays were getting sold, movie roles were getting snagged, films were getting produced. You see, he was a person who kind of despised the mundane life, if you know what I mean, the banal things. He wanted a life at its best and most exciting. Well, he fell into a career as a set designer, was incredibly gifted at that, and he began to work with stars like Meryl Streep, Katy Perry, Christina Aguilera, Nicole Kidman, Paris Hilton, Oprah Winfrey, just to name a few. There were many, many others. He said, I was having a ball. What more could I, I have asked for? He said, look, if somebody had given me the chance to script my life early on, I could not have planned a career and a life any more exciting than my daily life was now. But Beckett knew that somewhere deep inside, He knew that something was missing. He would have described himself at the time as somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. And he felt contempt, suspicion, indeed disgust for Christians. His words, not mine. Those are the words he uses in the book. But one day at a coffee shop in Los Angeles, he struck up a conversation with a Christian who was confident, socially adept, biblically astute. He asked him questions. The man answered his questions in a straightforward way about homosexuality, about a number of other issues. He gave candid biblical answers, but instead of being repulsed, Beckett found the man's answers quite refreshing. And so when this Christian stranger invited him to his church, Beckett accepted the invitation and decided to go. Well, the very first service he attended, he heard the gospel preached with clarity. In fact, the pastor was working his way through the book of Romans, and he happened to be in chapter 7. And boy, Beckett said, I was just identifying with everything he was saying, and and I couldn't believe it. I found myself agreeing with it. And at the end of the sermon, the pastor gave an invitation. If you wanted to pray, just come to the front area, and there would be people there who would spend a moment praying with you. And Beckett responded. He walked up to one of the prayer team members, and he said, hi, I'm not a Christian, I really don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And the prayer team counselor immediately said, okay, let me pray. Let me pray for you. Later, as the congregation continued to sing and worship, Beckett went back to his seat to kind of process the sermon and the prayer and the music and and the people and all that he had experienced at this place. And he said, And I'm going to actually read the words now so I'm sure I get them right. I'm reading from verse 19 or page 19. He said, verse, this is the word of God. No. All of a sudden, a giant wave of God's presence came crashing over me. A flood of intense warmth, emotion, and power coursed through me. I didn't understand it at the time, but I now believe it was the Holy Spirit. I had no prior experience with this, no framework for it, and no way of anticipating it, but it was the most penetrating moment I had ever experienced. I was utterly overwhelmed, and I started bawling uncontrollably. It was a kind of weeping that I had never experienced, an extremely deep, Wretching sob. In a way, he says, it was like an infant's cry, which makes sense considering I had just been born again. And by the way, since that happened on September 20th, 2009, Beckett Cook has been a faithful follower of Jesus. He actually went to Talbot Theological Seminary, earned a degree, and has become a wonderful ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, try to set aside for a moment, brothers and sisters, the fact that Beckett's particular brand of sin was homosexual activity. That's not what this story is about. That's not why I'm telling it. It could have been anything. It could have been lying or gossip or greed that gripped his life. He he could have been a a church-going, self-righteous snob, for that matter. Don't get hung up on his exact sin. But here's the question I have for you. How do you account for that kind of life change? What leads to that kind of genuine, radical, soul-transforming conversion? How do you explain that? And what would it take for what happened to Beckett Cook to happen right here in the Capitol District on a massive scale? I I think God has a plan for that. And I think his plan involves us. You see, the first words that Jesus ever spoke to his disciples, not the first words he ever spoke, But the first words he ever spoke to those people who became his disciples directly to them are are recorded here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Let me read this section for us. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. That's the phrase I'd ask you to focus on that first call, that first challenge to the disciples. At once they left their nets and followed him. And then verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I'm I'm struck by that. Fishers of men, fishers of people. He didn't say, now you follow me and I'll make you all itinerant evangelists with glowing vocabulary where you can sway the masses. He didn't say that, nor did he say, hey, follow me and I will assure you, I'll uproot you from your family and your homeland and you're all going to be foreign missionaries for me for the rest of your life. Didn't say that. Nor did he say, look, follow me, and you're all gonna get to work for a church, hallelujah. No, no, all those things are fine. But what he said is something very different than that. And that's what I wanna unpack together with you today as we begin this brand new series I'm calling Potency and Proximity. And I think that shortly those two words it will become clear what we mean by that. So let's dive in. First, I want us to focus on this call, this call to follow Jesus. What I wanna say about this is it's more than a call to come and get your sins forgiven. It's, it's more the, the, than a call to come and pray a little prayer and kind of get your barcode so that when you, know, you get to the gates of glory, you can just kind of go right through without any hassle. This, this phrase, follow me, if you kind of look at it throughout the Gospels, it's code language for discipleship. It's a radical call to get involved with Jesus in the work to become a co-worker with him, an ambassador for him in the work he's doing in the world. So the natural question is, well, well, what is he doing? He is doing stuff, he's working, but what is he working at? One of my real favorite verses is in John's Gospel chapter five, verse 17. You hear this at our house a lot because as I've told you, Every time somebody sneezes, I say this verse, or a portion of it, or an adaptation of it. Every time someone sneezes at the Keener house, I say, God is working. God is working is just my way of reminding me and everybody else who has ears to hear, make no mistake, God is working. Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Awesome. How? What's he doing? We don't have time to get into all of that. If you were to ask Daniel, in Daniel chapter two, what is God doing in this world? What's the Lord up to? He would say he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. That's what Daniel would say. If you ask Isaiah, he would say, oh, he's about opening eyes that are blind, freeing captives from prison, releasing from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. He's about bringing about justice in this world, and he will do it faithfully without getting discouraged, according to Isaiah 42. I could go on for days talking about things God is doing. So when Jesus said, my father's working and I too am working, that's pregnant with meaning. But the thing I wanna highlight, and I think we're being biblically faithful when we say this, I'm going to suggest to you this month that one of the Lord's key agenda items is to glorify the Father by bringing people, (coughs) all kinds of people, to himself. That's what he's doing. He's sovereign. And mysteriously, he's drawing men and women Boys and girls, old, young, people from every socioeconomic strata in this world, he's drawing him to himself, and he wants us to join him in his mission. That's why you're on the planet. Anybody needs a purpose in life? You just got it. Anybody struggling a little bit, wondering, why am I here? What am I doing? What am my life supposed to be about? Well, I don't know how he wants you to earn money, but I'll tell you what your life's about if you're following Jesus. It's about that. He wants you. He wants me to join him in His mission. That's the deal to introduce people to Jesus, then help them get better acquainted until they grow into full maturity in Christ. Now, I didn't say he's called you to close deals. Some people hear what I just said and they get, oh, he wants me to hammer people with the gospel. He wants me to get them in a corner and pummel them with answers until they don't have anything to say back. And finally, just to get rid of me, They pray a prayer with me, and I close the deal. I feel sorry for a lot of those people who've had deals closed on them like that. They probably weren't really ready. They probably weren't being drawn by the Lord necessarily at that moment, but some well-meaning evangelist pummeled them into submission and then went away rejoicing with another notch on the belt. God help us that's very different than what I'm talking about. He hasn't called us necessarily to be deal closers, although some of you may be very good at that. And if he's gifted you that way and called you to be that harvester, rejoice and celebrate that call and gifting from God. But many of you are going to be seed planters. That's your main role. Others of you are called to get like a big turning plow and plow up the fallow ground that's become hardened. Others of you are called to water the seed. Others of you are called to cultivate. Some of you are called to pull out weeds of doubt and discouragement, okay? But all of us are to be involved in this mission And if our hearts are open, here's what I want you to hear. If our hearts are open, he will put us in the right place at the right time to get in on what he is already working at. And that makes life really exciting. Jesus said to them in Matthew's gospel, chapter four, verse 19, I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want to talk to you about this this catch that he promises there. Because he, first of all, called them to follow, but then he has this, he kind of promises something. The implication, the strong implication is that I'm going to do something now. It's almost like a promise he gives. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Let's admit, to talk about being fishers of men, fishers of people, sounds strange to us. It's even awkward in our culture, isn't it? Fishers of men? I mean, most of us didn't grow up catching fish for a living, like Simon Andrew James and John did, but because that was their world, they got Jesus' analogy right away. Now, I'm not an avid fisherman when it comes to fishing for fish, but I'm kind of curious. I'd love to see a show of hands, and I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is, how many of you would, would say, loud and proud, hold up your hand, men and women, people of all ages, at all of our campuses, if you are an avid fisher person, you love to catch fish, you love to go fishing, could I see your hand, please? Maybe you've got all the gear. Wow, that's a number of you. Gear, the tackle. You love to go fishing. That's quite a lot of people. I'm actually a little bit surprised at how many. All right, let's change the question. How many of you, you may not be an avid fisherman, but you've caught at least one fish in your life. Can I see your head? Wow, you've caught at least one fish. Awesome. I wish we could hear some of those stories. It'd probably be kind of cool. I'm not an avid fisherman, but early in my life, I did a lot of fishing because on our farm, we had a large lake and it was stocked with largemouth bass, blue channel catfish, crappie, and perch. And in the early years of my life, we, we ate fish usually at least once a week and fish from our own pond. I did a lot of fishing in creeks and lakes and rivers. I did a lot of fishing. So I can say I, with integrity, I have caught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish in my life. Although I'm certainly not an expert, but I can tell you, I think I've fished enough to know there are at least a couple of cardinal rules you better be aware of if you're going to try to catch fish. The first, I would say you need to have what I would call potent bait, potent bait. I've fished with artificial lures, with worms, with grasshoppers, with minnows, with all kinds of stuff, all different kinds of creatures and worms. It's amazing how many kinds of bait, but you better have a bait that is attractive to the fish, what I'll call potent bait that will get the fish's attention, okay? That's cardinal rule number one. And the second that I'll mention is you have to have proximity to the fish. You have to go where the fish are. Everybody watch this. If you're fishing here, but the fish are over there, you ain't catching any. You gotta have proximity to where the fish are. So, two things, potency and proximity are both vital. Now, I know that this fishing analogy I'm using is imperfect, so you can't push every part of it, but the most effective fishers of people I've ever known have both of those, potency and proximity. They have lives that are spiritually potent and the quality of their lives is attractive to unbelievers. In Jesus' words, they're kind of salty. They've not lost their saltiness. They're kind of light. Their lives are a lie to, to a dark world. And secondly, they have proximity to unbelievers. Now listen, you could be the most spiritually potent Christian on the planet But if you never rub shoulders with real unbelievers, you're not likely to do a lot of good. Potency and proximity are both crucial. Now, I'm gonna ask you to do a little inventory and score yourself. How would you score yourself right now? Let's say on a scale of one to 10. 10 is maximally potent. One is, you know, just not there. How would you score yourself right now on potency and proximity. Now, don't blurt out your answer, but would you say you have a life that's spiritually potent? What would that look like, pastor? Well, maybe through the years you've grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What it means? A potent Christian is one who regularly displays the fruit of the Spirit, to people around, love, joy, peace, patience, all those qualities. It's just a part of their character at this point. They are guided by the Holy Spirit. They have a marvelous humility about them. They are sensitive and kind of try to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Is that true of you? People like that. You kind of know them. When you're around them a little bit, now they may not be loud. They may not be real visible in public people. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but You can just kind of sense Jesus is here. Are you spiritually potent? What about proximity? How would you score yourself there on a scale of one to 10? Are you regularly in contact with unbelievers, maybe in your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, your health club, okay? But you regularly rub shoulders with people who make no claim to follow Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Now, here's what I see about Jesus. He was maximally potent off the charts, but he also rubbed shoulders, didn't he, with people who were far from God, but also some people who he said, his words, were very near the kingdom. Jesus was just always himself. He was the real deal. He had a spiritually potent life that was off the charts, and he mixed it up with unbelievers. Now, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions today, but let me, let me get away with one more question, and only you could answer this. If God were gonna use you to be a fisher of people, and he really wants to. But if he were going to use you to effectively show his love to an unbeliever and help reach someone by his grace, who do you think that would be? Who do you think God would use you to help reach them with his love, with his good news, with salvation? Hey, I don't know who might've popped in your mind or what kind of people might've popped in your mind when I asked that, but I'll tell you something. If I've learned anything through the years, it's that God is often at work in the most unlikely places. God is working in people and places right now that you and I might never guess. Let me mention a few. I think God is working right now down in Troy, in the life of a 20-something-year-old young lady who just broke up with her boyfriend, and she's bummed. But she's wondering, is there any meaning to life? Where am I headed here? I always seem to get disappointed with relationships. What's, what's life about? You know what? Jesus needs someone to strike up a conversation with her and talk about spiritual things because he's working. In her life. And God is working in the soul of a businessman who just bought his dream house up on Saratoga Lake, and it is awesome. And he has every symbol of success. He has all the things, all the toys that virtually everyone seems to be going after, scrambling after. But his soul is jaded. In Jesus' words, he's honestly kind of lost his soul. And his relentless pursuit of success has kind of edged God out. Not much room for God, but here's the amazing thing, you'd never think it. But God is actually working right now in his life, softening this man's hardened heart, and Jesus just needs someone, I don't know who, He needs someone to strike up a conversation. I believe Jesus is working right now up in half moon in the life of a teenager whose mom and dad just split up. He didn't see it coming. And man, is he angry. He's angry at life. He's angry at God. He's angry at his parents, even though he loves them. And he just is gripped with fear right now as he thinks about going back to school this fall and facing all these people again, and what is it all gonna mean? Jesus just needs for someone to strike up a conversation with that young man. Hey, I, I could go on and on, but, but I think he's working in the life of a homemaker right now in Latham. Boy, she's stressed. She's She's currying her kids around to every conceivable event, and she's trying to make her husband happy, and, and she's trying to be, you know, uh, the kind of person that, that is a likable friend, but the, she's trying to keep up with the Joneses, but the stinking Joneses keep buying things she can't afford, and it's bumming her out, and the stress just builds and builds and builds, and so... Every night, she medicates her stress and her pain with excessive amounts of gin. She's in a lot of pain. And she just feels sick with envy. God, Jesus just needs someone to strike up a conversation with her. You see, God's at work in the most unlikely places, preparing hearts and minds and getting people ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And Jesus just needs some followers, followers. People who said yes to that call, follow me. Jesus just needs some followers who are alert enough to see where he's working and to dare to get in on it. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what I'm encouraging you to do. I, every day, I urge you every day to get up and to meet the Lord every morning with a prayer that looks something like this. Lord, Lord, Help me to be sensitive today to where you're already working. Amen. And let me get in on it. Because I, I can't do anything by myself. I have no power to change anybody or to make anything happen. I can't do any miracles. Man, I, can, I can barely get out of bed some days. But Lord, you can You can change lives. Just let me have the sensitivity to see where you're working. I just want to get in on it. When you do that, life will become a grand adventure. You will be amazed at the places God puts you and the people he allows you to talk to. Are you following Jesus in that kind of radical way? You know, when we go back to this passage in Matthew 4, it's kind of interesting In verse 20, it says when he gave this challenge at once, it says, referring to Simon and Andrew, it says they left their nets and followed him. And then down in verse 22, similarly talking about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it says immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And here's the deal. Their lives were not problem-free after that, I will assure you. It was not a walk in the park. Discipleship is not that way. One of our wonderful pastors here at Grace sent me a little quote some weeks ago that I absolutely love. It's from a guy named Mark Gunger, And the quote that Warren DeLallo sent me says this. It says that if done properly, being a pastor is a walk in the park. Jurassic Park, but a park. Oh, I love that. It's the best description of ministry I think I may have ever heard. It's a walk in the park, Jurassic Park, but a park. And the life for these disciples was not a walk in the park. It was full of challenges, but they got in on the very heart and essence of what the Lord was doing. And that's what he wants for us. He wants us to be actively engaged in the great harvest, the catch, of people that he himself is drawing and in whose lives he is already working. Now, here's the exciting part. We have a perfect opportunity to do that through Alpha this fall at Grace. Alpha begins on Tuesday, September 13th. That's just five weeks, five weeks from this coming Tuesday. And every Tuesday evening for 11 weeks in a row, People will come to hear more about Jesus and about what he has done for them. Now, if you're a Christian, Alpha is not technically for you. It's designed for people who don't know Jesus Christ yet. They don't have that saving relation, or they're really not at all sure about that. Now, if you're bringing one or more people who don't believe yet, then you can certainly come with them to Alpha. But you're going to be hearing a whole lot more about Alpha in the next five weeks and beyond. So here's what it's going to look like. Each Tuesday at Latham, the sanctuary will be transformed into a sort of life-saving station. People from all three campuses will be involved. We'll share some food together. We'll listen to a talk together about some aspect of the gospel. And then we'll sit around tables and have real candid discussions about life, about what we've just heard, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I believe God is gonna do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I think he's gonna save souls and transform lives. Now, when you came to worship today, I hope you received a card, something like this. If if you did, and if you don't have this, don't sweat it right now. Just try to get one out in the lobby area at the information center before you leave. But I hope you got a card like this. It says 1102 on it, and that refers to Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verse 2, which is the start of the Lord's prayer there in Luke's version, okay? So I want you to take this card and look at it. On the other side of the card is a place for you to write down some names. I encourage you to do that. Write down names of people who, as far as you know, don't right now have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Write down their names and begin to pray for them by name. You may want to pray for more than three people. That's cool. You may want to get more than one of these cards, or you may want to start your own list, which would be a neat thing to keep going through the weeks and the months and the years, and invite these people to Alpha. Now, here's what I've noticed through the years. I've had a front row seat to this for decades now. People who come to know Jesus Christ usually have three things in common. You'll be hard-pressed to find someone who's come to know the Lord, really know the Lord, that these three things were not all in place number one, they had someone pray for them by name. Number two, they knew at least one Christian that they really respected, at least one. And number three, they were exposed to a clear presentation of the gospel. If we do this well, Alpha will involve all three of those dynamics. By the way, remember the story we started with Beckett Cook? Beckett tells how his sister-in-law, Kim, never looked down on him like most Christians did. She never condemned him or ridiculed him for his lifestyle, but she also never compromised her biblical convictions. And at family gatherings, when he would go back to Dallas for Christmas or to be with the family on some occasion, he would talk about guys and she would talk about God. But she didn't love him any less because of his lifestyle. She just kept treating Beckett kindly and with unconditional love. And Kim, his sister-in-law, did one other very dangerous thing. (laughs) I can't believe she did this. She prayed for Beckett by name for over 20 years unceasingly. And to be specific, she prayed one verse for Becket, Acts 26, 18. This is the one where Paul's giving his testimony before King Agrippa, and he describes how Jesus said to him, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, Paul, to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Kim prayed that God would open Beckett's eyes, turn him from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And after 20 years of praying that prayer for Beckett, God broke through and the spiritual blindness was dispelled and Beckett believed the gospel and was gloriously saved. I just wonder, I wonder if you could dream with me. What would happen this fall if we started praying like that and asking Jesus if we could just get in on what he's already doing? I think, I think he would show us his deep love for people and his kindness toward unbelievers no matter where they are on the journey of life. Trust me, God wants to use you, and I mean you, in that process. Father, this is exciting that you're always working and we get to get in on what you're doing. Thank you that we get the privilege of representing you and we hope to do it well in this world, to give people the right impression of who you are. So our prayer, Lord, as we launch into this exciting adventure throughout August and all throughout the fall is that you would love people. You would love people through our hearts. You would walk through our feet. You would serve people through our hands. You would see people through our eyes, you would hear people through our ears, that you would weep for people through our tears, and that people who right now are far from God would be gloriously saved. In Jesus' name, amen.